Hello and welcome back. It's episode 69 of Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. Today's conversation, we are talking all things copywriting, the written word, making sales through email marketing, as well as freedom of speech and political correctness. A heavy agenda, I think you'll agree, but certainly one that will be an enjoyable listen. To do so, we are joined by the coffee shop copywriter, Mike Samuels. Expect to learn within the podcast Mike's background within the fitness industry and why he left his passion within the fitness industry to work full-time in the world of copywriting. We discuss some of the lessons that both individuals and businesses can learn from how Mike has secured over $170 million of sales through his copywriting content. Mike also delves into his mindset and observations on some of the copying content that he sees online, which will be particularly interesting to anybody that either creates content online or writes emails for work, which will be many of us. Lastly, we touch on freedom of speech and what the increase in political correctness means for our ability to say what we want online. I'm delighted to say that this week's podcast is brought to you by MTN Coaching. Founder David Hatt has appeared twice in the podcast and a third episode is pending. David shared his wisdom on all things business and fitness and he heads up a team of six coaches who come together to form Scotland's leading online coaching service. They provide a range of bespoke programming and other different program options that you can join in order to lose fat, build muscle, all while enjoying and building fitness into your lifestyle rather than living like a monk. You can visit mtncoaching.co.uk and inquire today. That will also be linked in the show notes below. Before we dive into this episode, please continue to help the podcast grow by either dropping it a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on another platform, copy that and paste the link and send it to a friend over WhatsApp or iMessage and let's continue to grow the audience that we have here to enable me to continue to get brilliant guests like Mike on with good listen numbers and good engagement. Without any further ado, let's dive head first into this one. Welcome back to another episode of Cambro Conversations. And today's conversation, we're talking all things copywriting, the written word, as well as political correctness and freedom of speech. Quite an agenda. To do so, we are joined by Mike Samuels, the coffee shop copywriter. Mike, thanks for joining me. No worries, mate. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this. It should be good. Yeah, I'm excited. Big shout out and thank you to Mr. Chris Burns, previous guest in the podcast, for, for linking us in. And that I think that's the way that I've managed to get connected with so many interesting guests over the period, asking other guests who they're connected with, exploring their networks and understanding more. And I think it's an undervalued skill in 2020, 2021 to link into like-minded people that are interested through other people you already know. Yeah, well, I think it's a nice way to do it as well, isn't it? It's organic. It means you get to speak to people who you know have got, uh, hopefully, I'm setting myself up here, but hopefully some sort of credibility and aren't just kind of chancing it on the internet. So fingers crossed anyway. Yeah, it's, it's hard to fake it given the amount of time that you've been around though, Mike, because you've, uh, you've, you've been posting online for years and years and years. And initially that was in the, the fitness space primarily. So tell us a bit about your background and who Mike Samuels is. Yeah, so I'll give you the hopefully not too lengthy version, but started off um, working as a personal trainer in 2018, maybe, sorry, no, not 2018, 2008. 
<laughs> you can tell you're old when you get the decade wrong. Yeah, started off in uh, 2008 as a personal trainer at a gym in London. And I had the typical idea of this is going to be amazing. I'm going to train four or five people a day. I'm going to earn 60, 70 quid a session, have this fantastic life, all of that. And actually, the reality is a bit different. Uh, I didn't particularly enjoy the gym-based work. I was in the gym for pretty much all day, um, not really working, just kind of wandering around, hoping that someone would go, oh, you've got a personal trainer on your T-shirt. Can I give you some money? And that doesn't really happen. So I did about 18 months doing that. Um, kind of didn't do particularly well, to be honest. Maintained for a bit, but it was always very much hit and miss, not particularly financially stable. So... So I moved back to Southampton. That would have been uh, 2010 or so. I think I was just going up to my 21st birthday when I moved back, um, maybe 20th, but sometime around then, and started off a mobile PT business, which for the first year was pretty slow. And then all of a sudden massively picked up. So 2012, 2013, I was doing 50 plus sessions a week, uh, dabbling a bit in writing as well, because I'd always wanted to do some writing. But yeah, super busy, did it for a couple of years, realized this isn't massively sustainable and I'm pretty burnt out. I'm not enjoying stuff. This isn't nearly as fun as I thought it would be. And so I looked into online ways of earning income. So some of that was writing, some of that was through online coaching. Did that until about 2015. And then I got more and more into the writing. Uh, and I'm happy to go into more of this in detail at all, by the way. But yeah, short versions, got into writing about 2015. Kind of dabbled between writing and fitness for about a year. And then 2016-ish, about summer 2016, went all in on the writing side of things, wrote copy for clients pretty much for two years. And then 2018, went into doing my own courses. And since then, that's kind of the main thing, really sort of own offers, own courses, helping other people to make money from writing. As you said, Mike, lots and lots within that for us to, to, to go back and look into. And I guess one of the things that struck me in the conversations that we've had previously are that fitness was your passion and there's a lot of previous guests in the podcast who have maybe left other industries to work within their passion equally thankfully we've had some challenges to that where people have maybe worked within fitness like yourself Chris Burns um, had a young a previous guest as well and they've gone away from their passion to work in another sector that's maybe served them a little bit better and I find it refreshing that we need to have a balancing act between everyone should work in the number one thing that they love in terms of maybe lifting weights and helping other people lift weights and, and get in the best shape of their life. But equally, there's definitely other careers that provide fulfillment, but also financial security too. Yeah, I certainly think that for me, there are two reasons. One is that it's very difficult to get other people who are as passionate as you about it. So when you have clients or customers, they're, they're coming to you because they want the result you provide, not necessarily because they love doing the, the process that gets them that. So Oftentimes I had some amazing clients, but at the same time, there are the, the ones who do drag you down a bit and it does just become uh, more of a chore to go and train them and that kind of stuff. So there was that element to it. Um, and also I think that for me, I realized that actually one of the big reasons I got into it was for the lifestyle. And when you're starting work with clients at six o'clock most mornings and then pretty much going straight through to nine, 10 o'clock at night, and you're working both weekend days as well, you don't really have a great lifestyle. And then when you do have time off, uh, you're not earning money. So for me, it was a case that 
it was really great that what 21 22 i was earning pretty decent money for, for most 21 22 year olds and actually was in theory doing something that i really wanted to be doing and there were amazing elements to that i'd never well I'd, I'd always take that over doing a nine to five for me that's just kind of the way i am but at the same time i think i had a lot of expectations going into it that actually you realize that like with a lot of stuff that's not the reality of it yeah it's the grass isn't always quite as green as you as as you hope and i suppose you can see that throughout your career progression i suppose where you did the the classic one-to-one pt within a, a london-based gym you then went and did the mobile pt which again probably shows your entrepreneurial side because that's still not and never really has been a massively common service and then to start straight away to try and find a different uh, kind of a different way to live your life while still using an element of that so kind of doing online fitness training but that was when the writing started as well yeah so i'd always fancied being a writer i think that came from reading the old stuff on teenage and elite fts back around probably when i started off doing pt to be honest and also reading print magazines as well i always fancied the that sort of lifestyle of a writer the credibility of being published and so i got into it because actually that was i wouldn't say it's a long-term goal because i didn't throw myself into it fully necessarily i didn't do everything that needed to be done and i sort of also i suppose believed that you needed a journalism degree or an english degree something like that to do it so it was definitely much more of a side project but once I saw that actually you didn't need that degree and you didn't need formal training to actually make some pretty good money from it. And when it started, even just the fitness writing, not even copywriting, when it started to get to the stage where I could earn more in an hour doing writing, I could train clients and I could do it from a coffee shop or if I was going away, you know, you're on the plane going somewhere, you write a few articles, you've just earned enough money to pay for your first night away, that kind of stuff that started to appeal to me a lot more. So I didn't really, I wasn't even aware of copywriting necessarily at that stage, but I knew that lifestyle wise, and to be honest, money wise, that was probably the direction that I wanted to go with it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you started to realise the financials behind just writing blog, was it blog content mostly at this stage? Yeah, so I wrote for some content sites. So the big one that I had initially was the Livestrong website when they were churning out content and they were obviously kind of content marketing strategy try and get to the top of google for like every fitness term so they had pretty much unlimited articles they wanted written so i was part of a content team who worked through an agency and you could take on as much work as you wanted really and it was a case of doing an article they paid you for it so if you could do 20 articles in a day uh, i think it's about 25 dollars an article then they would happily pay you for that and it wasn't that difficult to be honest and then that along with some other stuff and people just reaching out to me saying I've seen you do your own emails. I see you do your own Facebook posts. I probably need to be doing that because this would have been 2014-ish when people were marketing themselves on social media, but people weren't as savvy with it as they are today. And so without trying to sound big headed, I was maybe a step or two ahead of the curve just in terms of I've been doing it for other people. And so, yeah, organically, people just came to me and said, hey, can you write me a couple of emails a week? And again, I didn't know that was copywriting necessarily. But to be fair, it was more content, but again same thing you could knock out two emails in the time it took you to train one client and earn more money from that that's really interesting isn't it and i i think you 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 make a fair assessment where you've had time under tension kind of experience before a lot of people started to turn their attention into how they could write online succinctly and, and clearly and if you're doing 
a number of articles, like you say, 25 in a day if you needed to. I mean, I'm sure there was days where you didn't hit that, but it's, it's, it's certainly, it's practice, it's repetition. Of course, you get to a point where you've invested hours and hours and hours in it. And unless you've got just a terrible way of learning or you're really like setting your ways, you're going to improve over that period as well, meaning that people will want to use you and outsource. And it gives you a skill set in that space that was rare, particularly at that point where, I mean, think about Instagram back then. It was pretty limited content. People were just posting one-off photos and loads of hashtags. And that was kind of it versus now where you do have the longer captions, you have people trying to funnel you towards their email list, trying to funnel you towards their different platforms. Yeah, it was basic marketplace sophistication, really. But certainly when I started out, very few people were aware of the power of story or very few people did the, and I know we spoke about this briefly beforehand, but the whole sort of vulnerability posts that can work very well, people just weren't doing those. They would do very much, here's some information. Here's even the smarter people would be like, here's this really complex study that I understand and anyone who's going to buy from me is going to have no clue, but in my mind, that's content. And so I was writing stuff that was a bit more personable, uh, a bit more story-based, a bit more, I wouldn't even say witty, but a bit more conversational. And I think people resonated with that when I was doing it. And again, not to say by any means I was the only person doing this, but um, sort of connections would reach out and yeah, say, look, can I have some social media posts for a week or can I have some emails because they were putting time into content and not getting anything from it. And actually even a lot of people with pretty big followings were finding that I've got 50,000 followers and I've only got five online clients. What am I doing wrong? And so, yeah, just organically, it tended to pick up pretty well. That remains a problem for, for many large fitness-based Instagram pages for starters, but uh, certainly one that was probably an even bigger problem back then in terms of conversion of this mass of people who'd kind of invested in you. Like people like... Jeff Side and Matt August and stuff like that had these huge, huge followings, but financially they weren't smashing it out of the park. And it's maybe only in, in recent years where they've maybe been actually able to monetize beyond sponsorships or kind of one-off, one-off programs or, or, or one-off deals with, with, with brands. And I think that a way to do that is to learn how to connect with your audience through the power of story, through relatability, through vulnerability. I'm sure we will get onto what that's like nowadays online and maybe an overused tactic, but you were writing for Live Strong. How do you go from there to one of the headline figures that sits be- beside you, Mike, as somebody that secured over $170 million of sales through online content copywriting? So the first step in all honesty was getting fired by Live Strong because <laughs> they, uh, they claimed that I'd fabricated a reference, which I hadn't, but it was one of those where, um, yeah, that was kind of one of those, you know, you've done this, there's no coming back for it. Like when you get banned from Facebook, there's no uh, no sort of retribution you can have, no no process to appeal that. So cancelled in the workplace, officially. Pretty much, yeah. I was, I was, it was cancel culture before uh, before that was popular. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they let me go. So I needed to find a way to replace that income pretty quick. And so I, I'd had an ebook, ebook, an ebook in the works for a while. And I just thought I need to sell this and get this out there. So I reached out to a guy who I'd actually done some personal training sessions with, who was a copywriter and had at the time, probably a year before this, had mentioned, look, you probably want some sort of online stream of income. Because uh, I'd had a chat with him and talked about, I'd been getting loads of hits on my website, but I wasn't really monetizing it that well at the time. 
And so he helped me with some sales copy for that. And I put that ebook out there, I had an email list of about a thousand at that time, I think. Um, and in the first day, it did just over a grand in sales, which at that time was absolutely mind blowing for me. And I couldn't see, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. it was a 12 quid ebook and it sold you 80 something copies to a list of a thousand people. And I was like, that's just bonkers. That's sort of what I was earning in a week at the time. And um, yeah, from then I realized the power of, I suppose the power of copy really without sounding too cliche. And so did a bit more of the online stuff then. I thought, okay, need to replace this income stream from that I've lost from Livestrong. I don't want more one-to-one -one clients because I had gradually been reducing how much I was doing and then upping the, the content writing side of things. So that was when I decided to go more into looking at online clients. So I had a few here and there. People had said, look, can you do me a diet plan? Can you do me some training plans? I live up the other end of the country and stuff. So I'd done a bit of that, but I started to push online a bit more. And then I suppose that led me to looking more seriously at copy. So I did a couple of courses, um, had some, some coaching from people and eventually got to the stage where the, like I said, about 2016, I was trying to balance the two and realizing that this isn't going to work. And so, yeah, went full time into copy from there. What enabled you to go full time? Like you say, you invest in these courses and, you know, I might touch on as we go a conversation that we've had previously around people's willingness to maybe invest in genuine courses, not your kind of scam artists on YouTube, like pay me a thousand pounds for this ebook and uh, you'll wake up a millionaire like me, but genuine courses that move the needle in terms of your skill set from a good copywriter to somebody that can afford to charge and merit the, the the fees that you're looking to charge what enabled you in 2016 to go all in or was it genuinely just a case of you realizing that you could so i definitely had some help in terms of and uh one of the guys helped me a lot a guy called dan meredith so when i was getting into it dan and i had a conversation we met online through mutual friends and effectively the the i suppose the journey so to speak was the 2015 ish he, I, well, I paid him for mentoring to help me with my online fitness business to get more online clients. And he said to me, actually, your blogging's pretty good. Your email's pretty decent. Instead of me paying him for mentoring, did I want to do a bit of work for his copywriting agency that he was running at the time? So I thought, yeah, why not? Let's do that. So we did that arrangement for a few months. And then I, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think I said to him, look, I don't, particularly want to do fitness that much anymore so he said well why don't you come and help me out with some stuff at the agency so again had about three or four months where rather than him mentoring me he paid me to write for his copywriting agency and I still did the fitness stuff I just didn't try and push it too much and I suppose that was a process of around about a year maybe and then effectively it was actually him who said to me a year or so later when I said that I'm sort of at a crossroads, don't really know what to do. He just told me to essentially make a decision and decide which I wanted to do. And like I said, the, the financial aspects and the lifestyle aspects were really what made me go, do you know what? Fitness has been fun. I still really enjoy it, uh, but it's always there to fall back on if I need to. I built this up once. It's not actually going to be that difficult to build it back up again. If I need to get back to this level, I can probably do it quicker because I know what to do and what not to do. So yeah, it would have been summer 2016-ish. I think I didn't just completely cut ties of fitness stuff, but I cut my workload about 50% and then just let everyone else drop off kind of organically along the way, really.
Yeah, first of all, I've read Dan's, well, one of Dan's books, How to Be Fucking Awesome, and I'm, I'm glad he uh, he was bullish enough and straight-talking enough to tell you to just, yeah, if you're not feeling this fitness stuff and look at the talent you've got in the copywriting game, let's let, let, let's go for that. And I think sometimes you need a figure like that to to make a move as, as, as bold as that. And uh, one of the questions I was going to ask that you addressed it was around the fact that you'd moved away from one-to-one, you had your fitness business online, but even then fitness online coaching didn't stack up to the lifestyle benefits and the financial return that you were seeing from, from writing. So I think it's interesting that you did almost try to keep the fitness thing going. And, but even then it paled in comparison to what you seem to now really find fulfilling both financially, but also in terms of purpose within your work. I would certainly say that I didn't set up my online business as well as it could have been as in, I believe that I, I was a decent coach. I, I got people good results, but at the same time, um, I've had online coaches myself since then. Their systems are far slicker than mine were. So I certainly made it more difficult for myself for the fact that everything was just emails and word docs. Um, and I'm not a massive believer that like you need an app or anything like that, but I certainly think that just using something like Google Sheets or having a check-in process, I was very much... Some people can check in on a Monday, some people on a Tuesday. I promised same day replies, all that kind of stuff. It was very much, I wouldn't say it was cheap, but certainly the average client was about £100 a month, which you can talk about pricing and benefits of high versus low and volume versus, you know, uh, fewer clients paying more, all that kind of stuff. But I was at one stage handling probably 55, 60 clients and I didn't have a clue what day people were supposed to check in. Like I had to always refer to my notes for people. I was awful at chasing people up if they didn't. So I certainly think that I'd gone into it very much embracing the concept of minimum viable product, which again, I fully think is the right way to do it, but I'd gone minimum viable products and then kind of kept it a minimum viable product instead of putting systems in place. Um, and that's just a lesson to learn, but I wouldn't say it got stressful, but it got to the stage where it was just difficult to manage really because of the way I'd set it up. And so, yeah, I enjoyed that because I could still do the traveling and work from anywhere and not have to do meetings and stuff. But at the same time, it was obviously you get a, a dropout rate as well. And I didn't particularly like having to have sort of 50, 60 people who were reliant on me. Uh, and again, copy just provided a way that actually you could work with far fewer people, make the same, if not even more, and actually have more freedom as well. Yeah, it's interesting you raised that point around 50, 60 people reliant on you and maybe needing to top that up through a sales funnel and, and keep things going and have all that different contact because you have quite a high level of self-awareness from every interaction that we've had and you almost call yourself the archetypal introvert and to have that self-awareness within being the face of a large online fitness coaching service but also you maybe would have had to take on staff to start to drive that further forward. How do you think that self-awareness of yourself as a little bit of an introvert has helped you in the copywriting space, but also to make big decisions like that? It's probably a bit cliche, but playing to your strengths, I guess, in terms of I know that I'm not particularly organized at all. So that means I either think, right, I need to spend some money to get someone else to help me with this or I just make sure I don't take on things that are going to stress me out. Like if I, I've had a couple of projects before where it's been very much, okay, you need to be part of this Slack channel and this 
bored with whatever else like asana and you need a team meeting twice a week and everything and for me that's just my idea of hell not because it's necessarily difficult but because i don't necessarily want to be showing up on team meetings a lot of the time i don't necessarily want to have to be checking stuff all the time because yeah even the the tiniest bit of organization freaks me out whereas if you give me a project and say you've got three weeks to do this be as creative as you want with it that's awesome because i'll probably get it done pretty soon but at the same time, I've got complete freedom over how I do that. And then I think the, the introvertedness, you can probably use it as a strength. Like for me, I know that probably most people I talk to, there'll be some extroverts there, but I would say most people who um, like run my email list or social media are probably have some degree of intro, introvertedness. If that's a word. I probably should know what words are <laughs> seeing the job I do, but introvertedness, let's say. Um, and so, a lot of the time people think, well, if you want to sell stuff, you have to be a natural salesperson and I'm not, or you need to be naturally creative and to have always been like that. And again, I've not always been naturally creative as in at school, the, the subjects I was best at are probably maths. Um, yeah, probably maths, to be honest, maths, maybe science as well, but certainly not English literature, English language, anything arty. So I think being aware of that and then almost repositioning it as a strength whether you want to reposition it as a strength to show people that they can do the same thing, even if they're in your position, or whether you want to um, use it as a way to get better at that and being aware of it so you can actually improve it. I think there's pros and cons to both approaches. But yeah, just for me, it's more knowing who I want to work with and what type of work I want to do. And actually, even if something pays well, if it's going to stress me out and actually plays my weaknesses, I'm probably going to avoid that. Yeah, I think to, to break the, the the wall with the listeners here, that self-awareness of your strengths and weaknesses and where you apply that within your career and your business is something that you can see throughout your career. And you've probably now found a space now where you're playing to your larger strengths while avoiding your weaknesses. And then you always get the gurus who'll be like, no, like turn your weaknesses into strengths. And that's all well and good, but sometimes you just want to maximize frictionless success and the lifestyle that you lead seems to be doing that. Well, I always think that you've got to do, and again, this cliche number two, you've got to do what makes you happy. And for me, I, my life is good enough that I don't need to do other stuff necessarily. So I like push myself, I like getting out of my comfort zone, but I would rather get better at what I think I'm already pretty good at than spend a lot of time struggling with something that I maybe don't need to learn. Or if I can outsource it, I'll always outsource it there are pros and cons to it. I definitely think that actually, if you run a business, you probably should have an idea of every element of that business. So if you're doing sales calls, you should probably start off doing sales calls yourself rather than straight away hire someone to do them for you, because that will enable you to train the person better. It will enable you to see, okay, is this guy actually doing a great job if they're not selling anything? Or is it something at a different part of the funnel? Let's say, likewise, it's good to know how different bits of your business are organized, but yeah, I don't particularly want to be doing admin stuff. I don't want to be chasing up payments. I don't want to be getting on the phone with people. So I will either choose to not do that or find someone who can do it a lot better than me and free up my time, free up my headspace to do the stuff that I enjoy. Yeah, the stuff that really moves the needle forward or makes the boat go faster, so to speak, that you know you can do. The rest of it, let's get somebody else in, somebody else involved or, not, or work in an industry where you don't need to do it as much. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And again, that's not to say you need a massive team to uh, to do everything you don't like. And there will be elements of business that you have to do that aren't particularly enjoyable. Certainly for me, there are elements that I don't dislike, but everyone has stuff they enjoy doing more than other bits. But I do think if you've got a basic skill level of most stuff and you still don't enjoy it, then find a way where you don't have to do that. I think we're all in business because we want to have a lifestyle we enjoy. And that's not to say it always has to be sunshine and roses and you love every minute of it. But if you're consistently doing stuff that you think this is really lowering the quality of my day, my week, my life as a whole, you probably want to look at a way not to do that because long-term it's just going to drag you down. Yeah. I think from, from the start of this conversation, it's clear that you've got some interesting observations and clear views on certain things that you see within the business world online, but also within your own psyche and who you are. What is your thought process regarding imposter syndrome? Is it something that we can use positively or is it always a negative? I think you can use it positively. Um, there's actually a, it's not directly on imposter syndrome, but there's a really good book on this called The Alter Ego Effect by, I think it's Todd Herman, I want to say. There's some really interesting ideas in that in terms of actually finding an alter ego to help overcome imposter syndrome. And I don't necessarily buy into exactly what he says, like you need a character to do it and you need to completely adopt this other lifestyle. But I often refer people to the fact that when I was still riding the line between mobile PT and writer, what I found very difficult was switching between the two because I did feel like as a writer, I had an imposter syndrome because for me, a writer lives in some loft in, you know, swanky loft in Brooklyn and they go out shopping at Whole Foods and they, you know, organic kale all the time. And I just didn't feel like that. I was driving around in a Ford Focus, 120 kilos of kettlebells in the boot and I was playing at being a writer. So what I used to do, I've always pretty much worked from coffee shops. What I used to do before I went and wrote anything was I would get changed out of my PT kit. And that's a really, sounds really weird, but it was very rare that you'd find me writing in tracksuit trousers and a t-shirt or I wouldn't put on a, a three-piece suit, but I'd slip on some jeans, I'd put on smarter shoes, I'd put on a nice polo shirt and I'd go and write. And actually that enabled me to go into that other persona as well. So if anyone's struggling with it, that's what I would say is think about the processes you need to go to, to get over that. And actually imposter syndrome sometimes forces you to get better because if you're just naturally confident that something you can blag it, but you can only blag it for so long. And actually, if you feel like, okay, people might be judging me here, people might think I'm not very good, you're likely going to either go one of two ways. You either don't do it, or you think, well, I really need to make sure that I am legit with this. So I'm going to practice, I'm going to do courses, I'm going to hire a mentor, whatever it is. And so I definitely think that for most people, that actually forces you to get better. It will always be there to a degree, depends on your natural levels of confidence. But I can certainly say from someone who's not naturally confident, for me, if anything, it, it most likely helps to have that. Yeah, lots and lots within that, Mike. The, the first of those, like you say, that alter ego is very interesting, how dressing for the type of role, it almost enables you to flip the switch between the two different personas that you had, not to say that you've got schizophrenia, but it's certainly important to make sure that you may be dressed. I think a lot of people listening might find that's been the case working from home during this period where traditionally they would wear office wear into their office and look smart and that would be work mode and going, going to home where 
you've seen people working in onesies, pajamas, their their hoodies. I, I work regularly in a, in, a, in a jogger and hoodies at home, but I'd had experience working from home well before the pandemic. So I, I kind of was quite comfortable with it while also having experience of working in an office in a suit or, 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 or at least an open shirt. And I think people listening will maybe be able to associate with that where if they're talking about a particular serious subject, accounting, insurance, whatever, whatever space they're in, sometimes dressing for the job can put you in the best position to perform equally. You can almost create your own feeling of being an imposter. If, if you felt that you couldn't jump on a zoom call with one of your senior clients dressed the way you are at the moment, are you dressed appropriately to do the rest of your tasks? It's, a, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And I'm not necessarily one for massive rituals, but I do think that kind of thing can help. So environment plays a big part in it as well. As in, I know sort of during lockdown, I had friends who would say, oh, just for a change of scene, I've been going to a coffee shop and you get takeaway and sitting in the car and doing some work. For me, that just wouldn't work because environment wise, it's it just, well, it wouldn't work basically. So I think you have to find that you don't want to be too rigid because if you're so, so strict in stuff that one small thing being out of place throws you off, that's probably not a good place to be. And certainly if you want more of the freedom-based lifestyle, if you want to be able to travel, be a bit nomadic, you have to be able to uh, adapt to where you are and that kind of thing. But definitely working out um what works for you in terms of environment in terms of how you set up that kind of stuff yeah I, i'd agree with that entirely and certainly i think yeah perfect point a lot of people have struggled with that recently because they've been forced out of their office and it's very difficult if home is always where you you forget about work to now have it being a, a blend of the two that's certainly pretty challenging yeah just the last point on that i when I work from home, I'm fortunate that I can set up in my dining room or kind of living room, dining room area, and I keep my bedroom for, and I kind of, I've always thought like this, and I never used to study in my bedroom when I lived at home either, but your bed's for sleeping and sex. It's not for sitting on your phone. It's not for doing work. I've always found it very difficult to work or study or do anything like in my bedroom. So having that separate boundaries can be, can be a good thing. The next point you were making around imposter syndrome being channeled positively, I think will be incredibly helpful for people because if you don't have an element of doubt, then you're probably just doing things that aren't stretching you in the slightest. And for all that you and I have been saying around playing to your strengths and outsourcing or avoiding or kind of bearing with your weaknesses, you should always be, there should be some element of stretch within the tasks that you're doing. And if you don't feel an element of, oh God, I've not done this before, fairly regularly then you're probably stagnating to some extent yeah without a doubt i've certainly been hired to do things like sales letters before and the first thought is am i really qualified to do this there are thousands of copywriters out there who've got more experience maybe more money for clients than me but it's that kind of stuff that forces you to get better because again i've been hired for sales letters for or even just general projects and people in the guy all i need is I don't know, like a week's worth of broadcast emails. Like, okay, cool, easy work, knock that out in a couple of hours, get paid well for it, but it doesn't necessarily make you better because you, I'm not saying you'd make mistakes, but you just go through the motions more with it. You'd make them good, but there'd be nothing groundbreaking there. You wouldn't learn anything from it. Whereas I know that actually the most in-depth gig that I ever had was super difficult but i learned so much from the process because you get feedback and that feedback comes through and you just at first it feels horrible because there's so much feedback coming through but 
if you take all that on board, if you're willing to learn, actually, you have to push yourself a lot harder. You you go out of your way to make yourself better. And so, yeah, having having some of those come across your plate every now and again, I'm not saying you need them on a daily basis so that you spend your life thinking, oh my goodness, how on earth am I going to get this done? It's completely out of my comfort zone. But having them on a semi-regular basis, yeah, I think that's the, the only way that you ever get better. It seems healthy, doesn't it? In terms of your observations then, what are some of the uncomfortable truths that you think maybe businesses or individuals have had to face during the last year to 18 months of the pandemic? I certainly think that people seeing that actually business is never guaranteed is a big one. So people who were suddenly hit by knock-on effect, maybe it wasn't that um, they themselves were struggling financially initially, but people who who worked for companies who paid them who'd then been fired from their companies or had to had to work there so they had to help a relative whether it's financially or in other senses that kind of stuff but certainly people seeing that customers aren't just commodities who are going to be there for the long haul I think is a big one and we often spend so much time working on the front end of our marketing and getting clients or customers through the door regardless of business whether it's coaching whether you're selling products e-commerce whatever uh, and there's very little done as a, as a follow-up for people. And I don't mean that in terms of follow-up like an upsell sequence or anything like that. I just mean in terms of giving people who've bought something from you a bit extra every now and then, whether you reach out to them with specific emails from time to time, whether you put on free live events for them in, in person or online, whatever it is. But that kind of thing, I think people, it was very difficult to recover that if you'd not been doing that already and oftentimes that stuff can just feel like a ball ache to begin with because you're like well sending out that email that's got a free training to people who've already bought from me and isn't selling anything extra that's not making me any money and it's like well no it might not make you any money now but then in a year's time how many people are going to have that reciprocity with you and think okay yeah things are a bit tight but so and so's free content they've sent me extra it has helped me massively over this last year so actually do you know what i might I might get rid of my Sky subscription instead of their membership site, whatever it is. So that kind of thing, I think, has been massive. And people realizing that, yeah, I should probably look after the people who bought from me a bit more. Um, in terms of other stuff, I just think probably general resiliency as well. I think a lot of people freaked out and it's been... Um, I'm not saying it's not been tough for people, but I think you've seen the people who have been prepared to adapt a bit more and I certainly don't think that all of a sudden you have to go from one business into doing something else but a lot of businesses have done really well in terms of incorporating more community and stuff and that's sort of died a bit of a death now I think people are sort of and I say this as a meeting on zoom people are sort of done with zoom a bit but in the early days that was a big draw I feel it's that if you had an online product or something getting people together on zoom um that oh sorry not even getting people together on zoom but having something where you could have some kind of online community, whether that was a, a group where you could have weekly Zoom meetings, whether that was just bringing people together because a lot of other people are unsure. And I think too many business owners probably didn't step up and be leaders, really. And yeah. they just kind of thought, let's just see how things go. So they'd probably be, for me, the, the big couple, I would say. Yeah, I certainly think a lot of businesses maybe took customers for granted. They didn't quite appreciate all the free extras and support they could provide to 
their their customer base. Likewise, a lot of businesses took their employees for granted and didn't really look after them in the way that you would maybe hope. Well, obviously there's ones that are on the extreme end of that. And I believe I was quite fortunately well looked after by my company. I know lots of horror stories where not just redundancies, but just general like placed on furlough with minimal contact and extended and extended and extended and not really supported to that extent. One of the other areas I've heard you speak around the lessons we learned in 2021 was around kind of passive income for businesses and 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 uh, particularly online businesses. Why was that such an important thing for you as an individual and for maybe others? So I think for me, the thing with passive income is a lot of people, they sort of idolize it and they think it's the dream, but actually there's a lot more kind of home truths to it, I would say, in that people often think well i'm selling something cheaper and because passive income is generally a bit cheaper it'll be your typical ebooks or membership sites that kind of stuff and so they think it's going to be easier to get people to spend money actually the hardest thing is getting people to take out their credit card and make a payment in the first place whether it's a pound or a thousand pounds it doesn't really matter and that does sound a bit like i'm just talking as people as just people who give you or sorry customers as people who give you money which obviously there's more to it than that but you can't underestimate how difficult it is to get someone to buy in something in the first place. And then with passive products, I think a lot of people had those kind of things before lockdown and whatnot. And it's because of that lack of extra interaction. Like they just gave people the thing that they paid for, no extra. Um, and that can be a dangerous game because then it does become a commodity and it's the first thing that goes. And probably on a more general point with passive income, it's not really passive, to be honest. The only way you can make it fully passive is to hire people to handle all the admin or the tech or the customer service stuff. And then you're cutting into your margins, which is perfectly fine to do. But you also need to accept responsibility for everything still, even if you hire other people. And the other thing is just coming to terms with the fact that actually, yeah, you do need to create stuff. So like I have a, a print newsletter and that is in theory passive because whether it, well, it's not quite passive, whether I've got one subscriber or 10,000, it takes me the same amount of time to do, but there's still work involved in that. There's still a day each month to write it. There's still the process of sending it through to the printers, editing it, checking it. Again, this is probably a mistake on my part, but I handle all the customer service stuff with it. So I sort out anyone who wants to cancel their subscription. I will then go onto the printers if there's missed stuff that comes through, but people need to stop idolizing that because unless you have a lot of people, it tends to be a lower source of income, which again, is down to your personal goals. If you want to make two grand a month, you can likely do that purely passively. But if you're shooting for six or seven figures a year, unless you have a massive following, probably not going to happen. So just bear in mind that Passive income is often the goal, but actually, like so many things, when you get there, you realize, okay, there's more work involved in this. And yeah, I've, I've hit these goals, but it also brings a few problems with it. Not bad problems necessarily. It's just not necessarily something that you can literally set it and forget it. Yeah, I certainly think when we're thinking about passive income, as you said, there's so much that goes on in the background, but particularly beforehand to lay the foundations, Mike. And put us in a position where we're actually able to have this constant earner. But even then, once it's in place, there's still maintenance. There's still you showing up on a, on a, on a, on a monthly basis to ensure that it's a good level of product you're delivering through your, through your, your, your print newsletter. And 
like you say, is a little bit idolized. Equally, you get a lot of people talking about passive income from a, a non-business perspective, maybe from like an investment perspective. But even then, there's an element of an admin in the background. I've been lucky to have a, a number of investors on the podcast and talk about money management and whatnot. But some people even then aren't willing to read the book by this investor. So I was fortunate to have Andrew Craig on the podcast, author of How to Own the World. And although it's one of the most listened podcast that's all well and good i still get questions off the back of it like yeah, yeah but like what should i do now and i'm like well one i can't give you financial advice but two i mean he spoke for an hour with us fantastic you got a lot of notes but also he did tell you to buy one or two of his books and then action the books and sometimes we think oh i'll earn a passive income of like 10 percent from my stocks and shares great but you actually need to set it up in the first place you need to pick the right ones you need to keep a little eye on it although it's passive it's not entirely passive you don't just sit there and somebody pays you monthly your your dividend well yeah and even to the degree that i'll get people email me and ask me questions i'm always happy to answer questions and i was the question will come in about how do i get copy clients or uh what's the best place to start and i would either say to them yeah you know, you don't have to buy from me but here's three books i recommend from other people on amazon they'll cost you 50 quid or if you want something truly free here's my free presentation, right? It's 90 minutes long. There is a 15 minute pitch at the end of my course. So if you want to turn off an hour and a quarter, turn off an hour and a quarter, you won't be sold to. And they'll come back with more questions. I'm like, I've literally told you an hour and a quarter, sit through this thing. It will answer your questions, but they want that answer in an email form they can digest in the next 30 seconds. And you, you think, unfortunately, that's just the kind of attitude that I'm not being elitist here, but it's just the kind of attitude that means you're probably never going to succeed at this. Yeah, in this space, that links in nicely to one of my questions that I wanted to ask you around spending priorities. You see a lot of people who maybe aren't willing to let alone spend time, but also money on upskilling. Why do you think that is? And what are some of the areas that you advocate that you've maybe done yourself? It probably does come down to priorities. And I'm the first one to say that you'll get a lot of this stuff, but are you, everyone with a business needs to invest 20% of their earnings back into their education, which I just think is a throwaway statistic and it looks good on a meme, but it's probably not true because actually if you're perfectly happy with how stuff is going, yeah, you want to spend some money on bulletproofing that. So it's probably an idea to be investing in yourself in terms of, I don't want this to all go to shit in a few months time, but if the way you're living makes you happy, then yeah, just go and spend money on stuff that actually, you know, clothes, food, meals out, whatever it is, because that's going to improve your quality of life. But if your business isn't where it's at, that shows you something. And it shows you, you either need to invest more time and whether that's just more time writing emails, promoting yourself on social media, learning business stuff through reading, that kind of stuff, or whether it's things like spending more time with customers and clients, giving them a better service, doing research with them, finding out what they like, what they don't like. But you probably want to invest money as well. And I'm not saying that it has to be mentoring or courses. It might be that you invest in email software or you invest in, to be fair, mentoring courses are going to be the big one. And like I said, I don't think you need to spend a certain percentage each month. I don't think everyone needs a mentor. I mean, I've pretty much always had someone who I've been able to go to for one-on-one -on -one help who I've been paying. And I think it's a great investment. If you pick the right person, it will pay back, provided you put in the work. But it needs to be a case of weighing up, where am I at? Am I happy with stuff? Or do I want something more? If I want something more, it just makes sense to me to go to someone who's got where you want to be 
and also helped others do that as well because I don't think that just doing it yourself is enough and actually just paying them some money that's that just tends to be the way things work not everyone out there is 100% legit but most people if you take even a portion of what they tell you and you implement it it generally tends to work yeah and you're a walking example of that in terms of the mentorship you got from Dan for example but also some of the other courses that you've done and like you say you can be selective you don't have to pick the guru that's promising you the the earth but you can you can go with the guy that's a little bit further ahead on the on the path that you want to be on and try and use his roadmap to to move forward and equally you and i've spoken before around spending priorities versus willing to spend on that versus maybe what goes out the other end as well and that sounds really bad when we're talking about oh well if you actually looked at your outgoings you could probably cut back on some of the things that you are spending on and i i hate when finance people are like oh spend less money don't have the avocado on toast and the brunch that you go out for every sunday yeah sometimes you can cut back on that invest that but there's so many other things in society nowadays that we will spend on luxury items and i use that term loosely when we would never dream of spending it on like a a thousand pound course that would maybe take us two three months to save for if we cut back on some of these things yeah and it comes down to what are those priorities and actually I think one of the things for me that helped a lot was that my upbringing was typically pretty middle class, but certainly my mum was very careful with money, not tight to any degree at all. Um, I never went without anything, but um, both parents were very good at keeping control of finances. Like we, as far as I know, we never had debts. It was never just whack something on a credit card. Um, And I think that can give you some scarcity issues around money potentially um, or some money mindset issues, but if you're weighing up and doing it as a binary thing, I think that's much healthier than having that idea of let's just whack stuff on a credit card, worry about the debt later, that kind of approach. But also when I initially moved out, I was very good at, I used to keep a notebook and write down everything I spent and everything I worked by hand. And I don't do that now, but it certainly got me into good habits of keeping track of what goes in, uh, what comes in and what goes out. And so I think that's, a pretty good exercise for most people to do and actually look at how much you're spending and it can easily add up. I mean, for me, some people would say, oh, well, getting coffee out four times a day is a waste of money because you're spending 10, 12 quid. You could easily make that at home. But the the benefit and the enjoyment I get from that is more than worth it. So like over lockdown, I didn't bother with that at all because for me, going to a coffee shop is getting out the house. It's getting in work mode. It's being somewhere different. I enjoy it. I'm not buying the coffee for the coffee because I tend to go to Starbucks and their coffee's not that great in all honesty, but that allowed me to look at the, what, why I spend on what I do. So it's like, I never bother with first class flights because I can sleep literally anywhere. And so put me on a plane. doesn't matter if, you know, I'm next to a screaming toddler on one side and a guy who weighs 25 stone on the other side, I'm just going to go to sleep. So there's zero point paying for first class. Whereas I will happily pay for a really nice hotel because that, you know, that does a lot for me, essentially. I really enjoy that. So priorities, I guess, is the, is a big thing there. And like you say, it's the delayed gratification, I guess. Am I willing to go without for a bit now in order to spend this money? And am I going to actually back myself to do the work in the course that the mentor tells me to do in order that in six months time, I can actually not worry as much about finances because I know that I've got a much more predictable source of higher income that's that's coming in. Yeah, and I guess just on that, you're absolutely right when it comes to thinking about what we 
what we spend on. So you're much more willing to spend in a nice hotel rather than a fancy, a fancy um, travel on the way there. You get people that would be absolutely horrified if you suggested they cancel some of their Spotify, their Netflix or something like that in order to put that 20, 30 pounds towards a course or a membership. I'm a member of uh, Crypto Glasgow Consultancy. Um, they've both been on the podcast and they have a, a Discord kind of Telegram chat, 20 pounds a month, helps my investing in crypto, helps me understand what I'm doing. But it means that I maybe I'm willing to buy YouTube premium and skip adverts on there. Or it means that maybe I don't have the takeaway on the third Saturday of every month that I would spend 20 pounds on going to Nando's or getting a Nando's for. And it's little swaps like that, which I know move me in the right direction. And I hate when gurus and stuff are like, oh, be like more conscious with your money, but please be more conscious with your money in the nicest possible way. <laughs> and that links me on nicely, Mike, to kind of finally, I want to touch on with you. You're from anyone that's followed you on Instagram and anyone that's listened to you here. You're very much common sense, logical thinking. That means you don't really fall into the politically correct camp that we're we're seeing at the moment and you view some of what's been going on in recent months and years as a little bit of a nanny state but given that you write for a living and you use the written word what are the biggest concerns that you have for our current trajectory with regards to freedom of speech i think probably that we're losing the power of intent um, because someone can say something that they mean you know perfectly well and it gets interpreted in completely the wrong way. And that's not how things should be just at all. I think, you know, we have, there's a reason why, uh, and this is going back to my A-level law days, I'm not claiming to be a legal expert, but that's why intent is a big thing in a lot of criminal trials, because if there's no intent there, um, that obviously muddies the water. Um, so yeah, for me, a big thing is that, it's the worry that someone can say something very slightly out of context and then be be penalized, you know, to the extent of losing their job or being kicked out of civil society, so to speak, or even being banned from social media because social media is kind of the public square now. And it's, uh, it's a difficult line because it's like a social media uh, company's a, a platform or their publisher and actually you know, we do kind of use them as a public square to a degree. I'm still not sure how I feel about that. I'm still weighing up there's many pros and cons. So I'm not settled on my opinion necessarily. But I do think that being taken out of context is a big one, or saying something that literally a month ago would have been fine to say that you're now again penalized for I think that's, it's a pretty worrying trajectory. But I also think there are people who will deliberately use new phrases and change the language because they want to trip people up really they they without going down too much a rabbit hole i think mainstream media feed off outrage and they feed off fear and actually if there's not enough fear outrage is an easy way to do that and you've got a lot of people who are playing into that culture as well at the moment and i suppose the big thing for me is that if something like that happens to people i'm a firm believer in that firstly only say stuff that you you believe, but you're willing to change your mind on and you've thought through very, very thoroughly. So don't just apologize because people are, are coming at you and don't just think, oh, I've said something awful here because if you believe it, it might not be popular. But as we've seen with a lot of stuff politically in recent years, actually what the, I suppose the people who shout the loudest are often the ones who actually have the minority opinions. It's the silent majority who, if you just stand your ground, they'll be the ones who back you. Yeah, I think that's an, an excellent perspective. And I think 
one of the key things that you said there that I'll probably hone in on, Mike, is that belief, that fundamental understanding in what you've said, but equally the willingness to, if challenged from a correct standpoint, or, or a, not a correct standpoint because that's political correctness, but if challenged from a logical standpoint, you'd be willing to hear it and discuss it. But also that faith that if somebody starts screaming that you've maybe misused a term that you've not done so with intent, that you don't immediately go, sorry, 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 I'm going to re-educate myself. I've done something terrible. But say, well, actually, what I meant with this was this. And, and that's not to double down, but that's just to reiterate that it came from a place that wasn't intended to be offensive or grossly terrible to, 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 to you or to anyone or to a group in society, but ultimately it came from a place of opinion. And my fear around freedom of speech in particular is that you're not allowed opinions unless it towards a particular party line. And like you say, a month ago, you might have used a particular phrase or even a particular belief like, look how quickly the, the COVID situation has evolved. Many of my friends now are completely disenchanted with how government have approached it. But if you'd asked them that three months ago, six months ago, eight months ago, they might have been like, no, 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 no. This is the best way for us to deal with this situation. But people should be allowed to change their opinion without getting shouted down in the way that they maybe were when the rest of the public or the rest of the general media consensus was the other way. I certainly think the there's a couple of points with this um one would be that as you said people are perfectly entitled to change an opinion and if you've gone through a phase um i always talk about is when it's this um what do they refer to as like um offense archaeology when they'll go back through someone's usually social media i think it's very important to note that social media always magnifies this so we need to say that look there's a there's social media freedom of speech and there's just sitting down in the pub with a mate like i've got mates who i disagree with on a lot of stuff um but we can have a conversation about it whereas if that was on social media even the most well-rounded level-headed person is usually a heightened level of irritability on social media um, but yeah, people can very easily dig up stuff you've said in the past and say, well, you believe this and still hold it against you. And I think that's, it's a very dangerous game to play. Like I've, and this will probably get a bit political, but if you look at all the historical figures who were quote unquote cancelled back in the summer, like statues being pulled down and stuff, it's quite a dangerous game to play to judge people from the past by today's standards. And where what's deemed politically correct changes so quickly even now, judging someone on what they said five years ago uh, and still holding them to, to, to that, that opinion today, I just think it's, it's setting people up for very dodgy futures, really. Because I made the, the point the other day that actually, what if 200 years from now, everyone in the world is vegan and you were deemed an evil person if you ate meat or had a pet? It's like everyone today would be cancelled, regardless of how virtuous they think they are. So you need to with stuff like that, acknowledge that standards will change over time, but people can also change as well. And actually, to be honest, the biggest answer to most of this, I think is just more conversation. Just be prepared to sit down with people and say, actually, can you explain that to me? Ask people questions. Because when you ask people questions, I think the COVID one's a perfect example. Um, actually, you find out oftentimes they'll realize themselves, well, I'm not sure why I think that, or maybe I'm not quite so vehement in my opinion as I was like I was speaking to someone the other day who said about something like oh it's all the 
all the youngsters are going out and spreading it and and you know they're they're to blame and we're going to be in this mess because them and it's people not wearing their masks when they're going out and about and I got into the conversation well what makes you think that and it turned out that was actually just their opinion they didn't have any data and they admitted that it probably wasn't as well thought through as they thought and that's not to say that you always want to challenge people and get them to think like you do because that's also potentially pretty dangerous but just having more conversation just finding out why people think what they think will either make them realize that maybe their opinion wasn't as strong as they thought or it makes you realize that your opinion wasn't as strong as you thought which is no bad thing yeah we'd be in a much healthier position in society and i think we'd be a lot less fragmented because in scotland in particular we're probably more fragmented politically and socially than we've ever been um with uh, the kind of nationalist unionist divide and it's almost a little bit of a an ulcification in terms of like northern ireland and we see what's happening there just now at the time we're recording is 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 quite severe with the impact of some of the brexit legislation but one of the things you've said there it's so important that we view previous events through the lens of that period rather than the lens of now like you say there's maybe phrases our grandparents would use about ethnic minorities which are deemed completely unacceptable today and we would agree with that that we wouldn't use those phrases now because we deem them to be offensive and we don't want to hurt those people's feelings but also demean them but at that time they're not using it they like 60 70 years ago they weren't using it to demean people yes it might have been said in aggression at points but regularly it was it was these terms were being used just generically and, and not and not through malice Whereas if you look back and heard that in, in society nowadays, those people would be pariahs and they would be on the outskirts of society for how they were behaving. But to then judge those people's actions now and like the statues that we're speaking about, that's hundreds of years ago where the world was a very, very different place. And if we were to judge them by today's standard, of course, their behavior is completely unacceptable. Yeah, without a doubt. And I certainly think that, like I said, it's the whole idea of remember that what you're doing now, people may well do in future as well. And so we could have potentially said stuff in this conversation that actually someone looks back in 50 years and goes, those two people were just utterly abhorrent and what on earth were they talking about? Because we don't know what, what stands the future's gonna hold. So I think for me, the big thing has to be more conversation and also just constant, not constantly maybe, but weighing up your opinion in your head and trying to challenge your own beliefs as well. And if there's an issue you feel particularly strong about, do the whole idea of steel manning it. So look, look at what the look at what the arguments against that could be. Look at why people might think the the opposite to you, and just I think being compassionate to people. Like I'm a polite person, um, I think. And I, if someone says to me, "Oh, you know, I find that offensive," if I'm with them, I will obviously avoid using that. Or if I've got a strong view that I know they really, really disagree with. I just maybe won't talk to it, talk talk to them about it, sorry, but also being strong in your beliefs and yeah, being open to change, but at the same time, um, thinking about why do I think that? Is this definitely still true? And doing a, almost, um, I can't think of the word I'm, I'm trying to use, oh, but- The pros and cons list of what you think about? Yeah, but yeah, do like an audit, an audit basically. Do I still think that? Have my views on this changed? Um, if so, why? Yeah, that, that steel man term is one that always stays with me when I'm thinking about 
things that I maybe disagree strongly with. I'm thinking, well, why, why, why would some, sometimes why on earth would somebody hold that opinion? But then you dial it back down to, well, maybe they think this because of this, their upbringing, their view on society, their current position in society, their uh, social media that they consume, because we all end up in echo chambers, which is almost the opposite of being able to steal man and understand other, other perspectives. Although social media has a, a way of making sure that we see both sides because one of the two ways to keep us on the app is one, to reinforce our opinions, but two, to trigger us to an extent that we end up reading the, the kind of opposite end of the spectrum and thinking, God, that's, that's horrific and, and, and getting anger from that. But I certainly think conversation is a really good way to do that. And that's what I've aimed to do with the podcast, to have Canberra conversations with people at a length, a kind of in a length, longer form to make sure things are a bit more nuanced than what we see on Instagram, Mike. I think that's the way it has to be done. And you are fortunately seeing a trend more towards that, certainly with mediums like podcasts as well. You see that traditional media is really seeming to struggle now. And actually a lot of the traditional media are even going over to having longer form podcasts with people or they're doing um, kind of episodes on different stuff on YouTube and that kind of thing, because it seems that actually people want that nuance where, or people want both ends of the spectrum. They either want the, the, whatever characters you can get in a tweet or they want the other longer end of the spectrum but that's the big thing for me is that there's a lot of people I really disagree with but if they're open to having a conversation I think that's great you can have that conversation and you can still be friends and there are people in the media in the public eye who I think I probably disagree with you on 90% of stuff but I appreciate the fact that actually you have thought it through and it's probably a worldview thing it's probably an upbringing thing I find that there's a big disconnect, not a big disconnect, sorry, that's that's too much hyperbole, but there's a definite disconnect for me with most of my friends who've gone to university versus most who haven't. There's an, another disconnect between most who work in more of the corporate world versus most who are business owners, not across the board, but just taking into account, okay, these people have had that different, you know, different upbringing, different lifestyle. Same thing with like COVID, you know, if you've had a loved one die with it, you're going to have a very different opinion probably to someone who hasn't. And so whilst it shouldn't just be, you know, this person's right or this person's right, actually, if you can try, if you're in one camp to look at it from the other way. So, you know, if you've had a loved one or loved ones die with it, look at it from the, the perspective of a hospitality business owner, let's say. Whereas if you're uh, someone who's young, you know, lost their job, and you're just angry about everything, try and look at it from the perspective of someone who's who suffered more directly from it. I think that's not a bad place to be because you may well still think the same, but at least you can then empathise and understand a different point of view. Yeah, big fan of that, almost walking a mile in somebody else's shoes to try and understand their perspectives and, and move forward. Hopefully we've uh, provided some thought-provoking conversation for, for people today, Mike. I certainly have learned a lot when it comes to your observations, your mindset, but also the career journey that you've gone on and utilizing that self-awareness of yourself for your strengths and weaknesses to maximize your potential to get to the successful position you've got to today. Now, I know that you're a man that likes a social media break, but if people want to connect with you, where should they head towards? So social media wise, um, that's probably the best place to reach out, to be honest. Uh, so it's the underscore coffee shop underscore copywriter on Instagram. And then just message me. I'll direct you where you want to go. If you've got questions, if you want to watch that free training I mentioned, um, I'm always very happy to just answer stuff. And then if you want to buy anything off the back of it, fantastic. If not, let's just connect and go from there, I guess. 
Brilliant, Mike. That'll be linked in the show notes below. I'm sure you've all enjoyed that. If you have done, take a screenshot, pop it in your Instagram story, tag me at call.cambro or reach out to me via DMs and let me know what you thought of the episode. I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.